One of the very simple uh, teachings, just a phrase that I like to align around when doing this kind of practice together, coming into a retreat, a more focused period of of practice, just to remind us and uh, to remind myself um, in terms of an orientation of effort and view and perspective, which is a line that is in a, a particular teaching around the cultivation of the factors of, of awakening, factors of enlightenment, one of the chants that we used to recite in the monastery and uh, Pali protection chants, where it says, Magahatakilesawa patu upatitamatang, which means Magahatakilesa, Maga means path, Hata means uh, to break up, Kilesa, that which obstructs. So, meaning that the path activity in and of itself has the power to break up that which hinders and obstructs the natural radiancy and intelligence of the fundamental nature of mind, so the jitta, the heart, um, that this is, um, and this in a way, what's so powerful about this particular reflection is that when we come from the sense of I've got to do this from a sense of self and it becomes you know, a huge enlightenment project that we take on, then it becomes this sense of burden or this sense of failure. Um, the sense of self starts to oscillate around this, this, uh, this narrative, internal narrative that we have about the whole of the practice. And it connects us within this, uh, you know, this, um, this constriction and this heaviness sometimes. So just to realize actually our task is really to apply the activity of the path in each moment. And when we think of it like that, it becomes more doable and it becomes more real in that actually we only really ever have the moment. (laughs) I mean, there is a sense of continuity and a process over time that deepens and develops the path. But in actuality, we're only really ever here. And so when we're here, then the task is to apply the activity of the path. And then uh, through doing that, patu upati means the, uh, patu is the fruit, and upati means the arising, the arising of the fruit of that activity of application of path. Uh, the fruit arises tammatang, which means according to the Dharma, according to its own unfolding. So it also takes away this sense of it's, uh, I'm going to have an agenda to bring about some kind of result that I want, and that's not, a, that's not a bad agenda, and that's often the way that we operate, but understanding that there's also a more mysterious, mysterious to us because we don't see all the depth of cause and effect, a mysterious dimension to the fruition of the, the uh, path activity. When that's going to come to fruition, how that's going to be, and what that may uh, look like in our lives and in the unfolding of our of our Dharma realization. Just like in the same way we look at a fruit on a tree, 
And we don't see from day to day exactly how that fruit is ripening, but one day it was it was unripe, and then one time along the way it became ripe. You know, so it means that something's happening according to nature, which is not something we're controlling from the strategy of the mind. So this brings a sense of doableness to the actual practice and a sense of trust, allowing ourselves to trust that we're planting the seeds of the path activity that ripen in, the, in its own time and in its own way into the fruit of awakening. And this fruit, as is articulated by the Buddha, why do we do this path activity? And, and one way that it's articulated in the um, Satipatthana, the foundations of mindfulness, the, the teaching around that is for the, the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and despair, for the passing away of pain of, and grief, uh, for the attainment of the true way, and for the realization of Nibbana. So this, this purification process, there's a sort of dimension of the work that we're doing that is purifying the mind, heart, body, sort of um, through the actual uh, application of this path, there's a process that starts to unfold and, and begins to come to fruition where we start to experience through the practice and discernment and investigation of the lessening and the overcoming of unnecessary dukkha or suffering or discontent or grief, lamentation, sorrow, and so on. Much of which, not all of course, but much of which is generated from within the habits of the mind and the, the, the avijja, not seeing clearly the ignorance of, of the mind itself, and something we'll look into as the retreat goes on, um, for the alignment with a, a true way, a way of lessening of, of pain and suffering, um, a, a way of increasing this, um, you know, in another way that the Buddha talked about the fruit of the path in the Heart with Sutra, he talked about it as the unshakable deliverance of heart. That this is really the essence of what we're doing. and This is why we're doing this practice. There are other benefits, but really it's this unshakable deliverance through, as is articulated, the insight into Nibbana, this word, the unconditioned, the place of freedom, that which is unconstructed the unoriginated, the unborn, the free, the peaceful, which is directly realized um, through this path activity. So in a way one could say it's the only real free zone ultimately. <laughs> Everything else in the constructed world has relative areas of freedom, but the true freedom, um, freedom from within, true kind of empowered liberation. And so this is a fruit that is worth really applying our effort and our application towards nurturing and quickening. So although we're just in each moment applying moments of path activity, we can quicken that path activity. And this is what we're doing on a retreat. We're setting the conditions in place to quicken the process 
of the cultivation of the path to bring about this fruish, these fruitions. So this is the, you know, it's another way of talking about this path is the bhavana, as the Buddha talked, um, used this word for meditation, bhavana, which is the cultivation, which is another nice way of considering cultivating the heart, cultivating the mind, cultivating awareness of the body and the energetics of the, the embodied experience through the application of these different aspects that we're, we've been talking about and have been um, practicing. The Buddha said, I do not perceive even one thing that leads to such great harm and suffering as an underdeveloped mind, undeveloped mind. And I do not perceive even one thing that leads to such great benefit and happiness as a cultivated and developed mind. So this this mind is this in a way it's all this mind, this mind, the cultivation of the mind, and then also the realization of the of the ground of the mind. So the, the freedom, the innate freedom, always here and now. There are these different dimensions when we talk about this cultivation. What are we actually cultivating and what is doing the cultivating? So cultivating mind and body through this, this application, the path, the path being sometimes defined, as Kittisara is mentioning in his talks, it's sort of boiled down to uh, three dimensions. It's uh, sila, it's cultivation of ethics, samadhi, gathering, um, focusing, um, being more fully embodied here, calming the mental activity, this alignment and unification of of body, mind, heart, energy, in in it to enable the clear seeing, to see. We use this term, seeing the way things are, just seeing how it is now. Seeing very simply, it's night. It's a changing of the light to from the light of the day to the dark. So we're seeing um, that externally, different phases of the room. As the room changes, the forms, people coming and going. Then internally, the feelings, the sensations, the thought forms, the moods, the narratives, the, the kind of different experiences we go through. One thing that we're seeing is this is this is a process of change. It's a process that you can't hold on to one particular piece of the changing flow of phenomena because it's always shifting. So that's say that's one thing we see directly. You know, it sounds like a simple insight, but we don't actually usually base our understanding from that insight. We base our understanding on a false assumptions. Things will always be as they are. It's a sort of unconscious assumption. And they get really shocked when they when they're not. So this this how do we know how what is actually the faculty of of that's being engaged to quicken this path activity? 
that's interesting is to explore the this faculty of what we might call awareness mindfulness presence what and what are the what is the faculties within awareness what's actually is aware what is awareness and how do we know that we're aware and how is that functioning how does that know what is the fruits of that knowing Analio Bhikkhu, who wrote a, a very comprehensive book on the Satipatthana Sutta, mindfulness, um, the foundations of mindfulness, which is a sort of core practice and text, um, talked about at the at the time of the Buddha, there were different ways that knowing was understood. Um, one was through oral tradition. It was all oral tradition at the, actually at that time before things were written down. So there was a great sense of, of honoring what was passed down orally, what was passed down through the knowledge of the ancestors and from those that had gone before as an authoritative source of teaching and knowledge. So there was, um, you know, things were prescribed from what was known from what, what what had been passed down through the generations, and one didn't veer much from that. We do this because of that. And then there was, uh, he talked about the, so he called that the oral tradition, and that's one way we know things, we have been told things. Sometimes they're good things and helpful things, and sometimes they're distorting narratives that are actually quite confusing from what's gone before. So it's a mixed thing. So, you know, he talked about um, logical reasoning as another way that, that was things are known, philosophical reasoning and the, um, as a tool for development of knowledge, sort of like the intellect, the rational, the thinking about, the sort of comparing, academia has that kind of approach primarily to how we know things you know, honed and developed into the scientific. So this is another way that we we know, um, and it sort of it sort of grew a great tradition, particularly at the time of Buddha, of debate, actually philosophical debate, which was something that the Buddha was very immersed in, and responded to, and was very skilled in. See his discussions with people that was a sort of sparring almost. Um, around what the, what reality is or what the dharma is and so on so this is a this is another way that that we can use the the mind another f- function and um and means of knowing and then he said in addition to that there were the wandering contemplatives the samanas or the sadhus of the time within which the buddha also immersed himself in that culture who considered, this is just quoting from Analio's text, considered extrasensory perception and intuitive knowledge uh, gained through meditative experience as a way of knowing. And when the Buddha was questioned where he placed himself among these three primary sources of knowing, he emphasized the development of direct personal knowledge through intuitive apprehension of how, you know, the... um, intuitive knowledge and um, extrasensory perception of how things actually are, how reality actually is, how the mechanisms of the mind. 
And so he valued that. He didn't clearly dismiss the other ways of knowing, but that was the main source of how he came to his realization. And it actually took him outside the known pathways of what had gone on before. So this this instrument that we have of consciousness, conscious this awareness, this mind is like an instrument and has an intelligence, an innate intelligence, a way, innate way of knowing that is being applied to what our experience is. It's, it's a natural function, if you like, arises in relationship to what is being experienced. And it also has a, an attribute of, of discerning, to discern. So this is, a, this is a very important attribute when it comes to this ground of the path that's been mentioned, the ethical ground of the path, the training of sila, then this function of discernment is, is very important to, you know, is highlighted, comes into play. So this is, comes into play in terms of an internal self-regulating orientation um, around our activity of body, speech, and mind, mental activity, verbal activity, bodily activity. And this, this is why this is highlighted, is because it's upon this um, discernment and aligning um, towards activity that brings around more, increasing the potential to bring around wholesome results, supportive results, internal um, psychological cohesion, the lessening of chaos, chaotic kind of um, overwhelm from just very disordered or unconsidered uh, action or harmful action, that it's actually quite hard to build the meditative work of samadhi when that foundation is, is not also being addressed. It's not a perfect science. We don't say, oh, we do one thing and then we do the next. It's a hologram. We work, each piece of the path is working together. So this internal sense of ethic is different from, um, from a moral sort of um, imposed moral that tends to be around regulating society and sometimes so-called morals aren't necessarily ethical, <laughs> um, as we know. So there's a, this is even more important, especially in our, our you know, contemporary times when there's a sort of a deliberate abandoning or deliberate deconstruction of, of ethical guidelines in political discourse and in some, you know, often also in, um, economic and business realms and social realms that um, that this that this what's called religious and through religious trainings erroneous religious teachings that's the what is actually presented as so-called moral is actually can be profoundly unethical and damaging so we can become very confusing if we don't have a an orientation around what is internally um, ethical so to turn to how the Buddha looked at this as the ground of our path um, is a very helpful piece where he's talking to his son, Rahula. 
Of course, as we know, the Buddha was married and he had a son before he became, um, you know, entered the path of awakening and then began his order. But later on in life, his son and his Rahula, his son, and Yasodhara, his wife, also joined the order and both became realized in their own, um, awakened in their own, um, in their own practice. So the Buddha is talking to his own son, and I don't know if Rahula had done something perhaps a little naughty, because the Buddha says, it sounds like something had happened, I can't remember the story, because the Buddha says to him, what is a mirror for, Rahula? And the Buddha, and the Rahula says, for reflection. So, and then um, the Buddha said, so in the same way, Bodily, mental, and verbal acts are to be done with repeated reflection. Whenever you want to perform a bodily, mental, or verbal action, you should reflect. Does this act lead to self-affliction, the affliction of others, or both? If, on reflection, it would lead to affliction, it would be an unskillful bodily, mental, and verbal act with painful consequences then any act with that result is absolutely unfit for you to do. And then conversely, if you reflect such acts are skillful and lead to skillful, happy results, then it is skillful for you to do so. Rahula, all contemplatives in the course of the past and the course of the future purify their bodily, mental and verbal acts through repeated reflection. So this is... What I find very um, helpful about this is it's not a, you know, it's a work in process. You know, we don't, this is an ongoing cultivation that through the act of repeated reflection, there's this purification, there's this subtle realignment or sometimes quite powerful and strong realignment to along this criteria. What is, is this generating harm or the lessening of harm? Is this generating suffering or the lessening of suffering? So that criteria is the beginning of guiding of what really is is ethical, what really is harmonious, what leads to this ground where the mind can start to settle, where there can be some sense of, of cohesion and orderedness and internal re- self-regulation and self-trust. And, and what helps to guide this uh, is a function, these functions of what's, what we would say in the West of conscience, that the conscience is this reflective aspect of the mind. So you could say another dimension of this knowing quality is it has a reflective, you know, like looking in a mirror, like it's reflecting, we can reflect on experience, reflect on action, reflect on the results. And, you know, part of what helps to guide this reflection, two functions of conscience is sometimes talked about and very helpful to, to recognize as healthy functions because they've been often been very distorted in our, I think probably primarily a lot due to our Judeo-Christian teachings around sin and, you know, being born into to sin and... Um, as being a sort of everything that we might associate with something pleasurable is a sort of um, a cause for the fall, <laughs> the fall from the Garden of Eden and and so on. So, you know, there's a lot of neurosis and complexity around this area and around what is you know, actually truly ethical and what is 
generates a sense of guilt and a bad sense of self. So, but there is a place, you know, there's these two qualities, hiri and otapa, hiri um, and otapa are two Pali terms, hiri meaning a sense of remorse for harm done, and otapa meaning the sense of, uh, a wholesome sense of fear or dread for the consequences of unskillful action. That both of those, when they're healthy in a functioning way, they're like guardians, in fact, they're called guardians of the world internally and externally, that they actually guide our behavior. They keep us in the human realm. Because when they don't function, when they're deregulated, um, when they're deliberately deconstructed, when they're confused and muddied for purposes of manipulating uh, people or or oppressing people or distorting um, people through the uh, oppressive use of power and so on, then what we have is actually breakdown and chaos and a sort of degenerative society, society and degeneration. So what actually helps stop do that are these very, very important guardians of the mind. And you know that also not only happens externally, but also can operate internally. If, they, if we're not actually honing them and paying attention. So this, this sense of hiri is uh, the feeling of you know, if you've done something that is unskillful and it has generated a ripple out that perhaps there's been a, some disturbance or said something or even the mental pathways that we can dwell in, then the hiri is that feeling of it, sort of that, that, that feeling, you feel it. You can sometimes just feel it as a sense of um, a pain or, you know, remorse. Or sometimes it can feel a burn, you know, when you really sit with something. It's like, oh, that really wasn't great. And that's actually important to feel. That's, that's not pleasant to feel. And often we go into denial and lots of very sophisticated mental kind of footwork around that feeling to justify why we're right. <laughs> but actually what's important is to identify that feeling is, uh, is something that's a guardian that's, that's come up and said that wasn't actually maybe that skillful. But where it becomes distorted is then when we generate from that feeling a guilt and a bad sense of self. You know, so it's rather than saying that action or these thoughts and the way that these thoughts are going are unskillful, which is a very sort of dispassionate way of recognizing a going off track, that's very different. And then feeling that and then having the sense of power and agency to correct, to have a corrective process, that's very different than going, I'm a really bad person and feeling that sense of shame and self-condemnation and judgment, which actually in a Buddhist understanding is really an unskillful state of mind. I was quite interested in one of our dear um, teachers, um, Godwin Sumara Ratana from Sri Lanka, who used to come to South Africa a lot to teach. Beautiful teacher, he's passed over now. But how he would actually say in uh, Sri Lanka, there wasn't actually even a term for guilt. So, so I think it's you know, something of a Western construct, construct in some ways. Shame, guilt. It projects on the self. So often when we 
You know, this, is, this inner critic, this inner judge can be very harsh and very irrational and very, um, not very, you know, not accurate, completely inaccurate uh, reflection on, onto the sense of self and diminishing the sense of self, harassing the sense of self. So to to have a, that sense of um, hiri as something wholesome that guides us, and then otapa, sometimes traditionally translated as shrinking back from wrongdoing. You know, you think like I'm really, really, I get really angry, uh, enraged, and I really feel like I want to, you know, either harm myself or go and screw someone's head off. And you know, there's something that that arises that goes hang on you know that you know it's like a like if the if the conscience and that faculty of mind is healthy it's like the fear of like the outcome of that the result of that it's even like talked about the fear of being ex in exile um like that in and in traditionally sometimes they talk about that just because you have a human body doesn't mean you're fully in the human realm yet that to be fully human is to have this part in part, and a big part is to have this sense of the ethical peace operating, the decreasing of harm, the the heart energy, empathetic and resonant within the web of life and sensitive um, to what is the result of what we're putting out. So to be exiled from our sensitivity and from our humanity is a painful place to be, and and uh, you know to you know, cer- certain actions, with if they're followed through and they're extremely harmful, begin to exile us from that core alignment, either as personally or as a society, from aligning with something more humane and empathetic, and safe, and um, g- protected. So as as we you know and this is a long this is a lifetime work but this is as this as we as we um, as this ripens and develops as a faculty through discernment through wise discernment it begins to also help ground the samadhi the gathering the lessening of turmoil um, the freeing of the mind from unnecessary neurosis and self inflicting on ourselves, these um, undermining um, old narratives of not being worthy or being shamed or um, being filled with guilt and these kinds of mind states lessen, a sense of healthy, sense of um, wellness, sense of being able to gather, settle, um, receive and open into the body in a healthy um, curious, loving way. I'm going to be training the mind. This cultivation of of the of the um, of attention, the attention. This this attention. So cultivating of the mind, Kirisara talking, talking very beautifully about this practice that we've been doing today of bringing attention back here. So allowing 
this this faculty there's another faculty of being present of the natural knowingness of awareness is it has this faculty of attention you're attentive you're attentive now you're attentive and so where we place attention and where what attention follows is very powerful it's attention is very powerful the Buddha said, actually, even upon attention arises the world. Not the big planetary world, but the worlds that we live in. So as you're following the narratives and thought forms and going down various pathways, those are the worlds that you're compelled to live within. And an untrained mind, as we know, we're compelled to live in all sorts of worlds that... Um, some of them are bright and fascinating and interesting, but quite a few of them are are not so great. And we're experiencing those worlds as we come into relationship with our mind today. The worlds that we live in and where we get dragged to even involuntary through habit, just through the repetitive going to that thought form, that narrative, that pain, that upset, that it's not fair and all true. So the training, so there's this even this idea that the training that can there's a there's a training in how we place attention is very powerful. That that mind that's going out through the thinking and through the separative consciousness that starts to create, there's a me and there's a world and there's a you and there's an it through language, through dis, 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 differentiating. All, all of that, which is a very com- complex territories of the mind, just realizing we can do something very radical and very simple by how is it now? So we bring attention, how is it now in the body? How's the breath? And it's something very, very simple. And we go, no, that's so boring, it's too simple. <laughs> Let me think about things, Let me work it out. But if you've noticed, you know, particularly a problem, we, we just sit there and go, I, if I have the space to really think this through, I'm going to crack it. You know, like, you know, does that really work? That's like in the realms of those two first areas of knowledge that were named. Or, you know, what did someone else do? That's the oral tradition. What, what else? What did someone? That's good. Or what, what, you know, what, how can I reason this out? And that's good too, but it's, it's quantum leap territory when we go into the direct knowing. That's a whole other way of being in relationship to our experience. You know, as Einstein said something like, I hate it, attributing quotes to Einstein, I don't really know if he said this, you know, something you pick up on the internet, and you go sort of authority for Einstein said to back you up. So... I don't really want, so I'm just going to put that sort of proviso on this, but you know that the, the, the rational mind is a, a great servant um, and the intuitive mind is a great master, but what we've done is reversed it, that we've now the rational is the master and the intuitive is not even, in, it's not even the picture is forgotten. We don't even actually rate the intuitive knowing intelligence of the mind. And this very profound and ancestral and you know reasons why that, that is the case but, but we're reclaiming that 
and naming it and recognizing that actually innate to awareness is this intuitive intelligence. So to directly and know how is the body, how is it now, what's happening now. And so in that process, this is the samadhi, in that process, the mind that's often disassociated, and that's quite painful as we've noticed, how that disconnect when we're in these realms of narrative that have been given so much energy in reality and through which we filter our experience of reality, which has a distortion in it. It's not exactly all delusion. I wouldn't exactly say that, but it has distortions in it. And then we believe and make assumptions on those distortions. That training that mind, that mano-vinyana, that separative consciousness that is being, that is sort of generated and, and um, dragging along this attention by bringing that attention and that f- mental faculty onto the slower rhythm of the body. So this helps that mind to settle into the slower rhythm of the body and the body infused by the illumination. The mind's nature is actually luminous. You know, it's like a light. It's illuminating what, what's being experienced. Illuminating the body. The body is really nourished. That's why this unification of mind-body is something that's very blissful. It's very pleasurable. Uh, but it's also practice, you know, again and again. How is it now? Oh, one more breath. One more breath. One more breath. You know, I was saying to someone in the in the meetings today that this mind, when it's, you know, it's like, this is so boring and, you know, it's more important if I think about things, you know, to, to then give the mind a task because the mind likes a task and it likes to succeed. So give it a very simple task. Can you be with five breaths? You know, you can count them on your finger, that deep, long breath. And then on the out breath, softening the belly, softening into the body, relaxing, trusting. You get to about the third breath and you're off in the narrative again, you know. So then, okay, can I be with two breaths? Do something that the mind can succeed on and building on that so that, that there's a negotiation with this really hyped up, you know, brilliant often, but crazed mental energy. <laughs> you know, we have to sort of, it's like this, just running around the field, you know. So you, you, first you give it a long leash. It runs and it gets a bit tired. But then you sort of give it an apple or two. So, you know, like, uh, it comes and like nibbles. And, you know, uh, the, then you sort of like reel in the leash until the mind starts to catch and then naturally it starts to learn to ground, you know, again and again we're training. And this is, you know, it's a slippery fish. But to remember that there's, there's something very powerful in each moment that we do that, each moment we return. Even when we slip away again, we're planting that seed of the path activity and that will bring fruition. It's breaking the set, it's breaking the patterning. It's realigning and reaffirming our refuge in this presence, discerning, fundamentally bright, aware, intuitive 
intelligence that's operating here and now, and it's the agency through which awakening unfolds. That which is reflecting, it's a reflective, reflecting like that, looking in the mirror, reflecting, but also reflecting on what is happening. How is the mind? What's what's here? What's what's being felt? It's magical that this can that we can do this. You know, it's magical that we have this instrument of consciousness, conscious awareness that has such a vast repository of intelligence. It says intuitive intelligence it implies here and now. It's available to us. You know, the Buddha would sometimes give Dharma talks, and he'd say to his one of his chief disciples, Sariputra, have you heard that before, Sariputra? And Sariputra would say, no, I've never heard that before. And the Buddha said, neither have I. <laughs> you know, because that's the potentiality of, and our potentiality of the, of the, of the mind. When it's not caught and distorted in the patterning. When we've started to, Gently, kindly, persistently unhook. But we have to see those patternings first. We have to see, like today, we've been looking and reflecting on what hinders us. You know, the mind running out, I want something. That's, you know, I desire something, I need something. And there's not many places it can run on a retreat. You know, after we've read all the small print and all the notices and checked everyone out and you know and that takes about you know half a day and then you think there's 10 days left to go you know it can it can be a bit i remember my first retreat it was like after about an hour i was like planning my escape which i actually executed halfway through and then i couldn't actually you know i actually well what actually happened is as a poor student at the time i was hitchhiking and i couldn't get a lift no one stopped for me so i had to get go all the way back and unpack my suitcase and carry on so it was a failed escape a failed breakout attempt yeah so the the mind is you know the mind's crazy and it's i mean that's the beauty actually of of being contained and in a limited form that was the beauty of monastic training and the horror of it actually is that you were sort of pinned down and you you know so you just see how insane the mind can be you know how it would be so kind of get into such crazy stuff about what it feels it wants and what it feels it's averse to i want my sitting space just here i used to go into absolutely unbelievable strategies around claiming my spot in the dharma hall and god forbid anyone should sit on it you know this is all an internal madness and i knew it was mad i'd get up early before anyone run up to the hall grab my spot i mean because there wasn't much territory when you're a monastic there's not a lot of territory you can hang on to so it all gets down to your sitting cloth your your cup you know your bowl you know and then you watch the madness around these few possessions so I sort of get up there and like, but the dukkha in it was profound. And I would be, as I would be sort of like hoofing along to the Dharma hall, and it's like this piece of little bit of intelligence would be going, you know, you're suffering. This is like, you know, I know, but I couldn't stop it until it got to, and then it was suffering trying to hold on, you know, like, you know, my space. And then the, the days when I didn't make it and it was all gone, I just like, 
you know, that was dukkha. <laughs> so we get to watch a lot of the, the mind in its madness, you know, wanting, not wanting, crashing out into, you know, like just dullness and denial and how can I escape and fantasies and I used to have these very very convoluted fantasies because for 12 years I didn't travel I hardly left the monastery and that, that was I used to watch the planes going overhead and that if only <laughs> please take me away please you know, now on so many planes, and it's a big issue because, you know, as we know, of the terrible um, situation, I feel very guilty about uh, you know, trying to address the plane travel. But now it's like, I don't want to travel anywhere to travel so much. If only I could stay at home. <laughs> you know, so I'd have these sort of like, I would have this fantasy about going to India. I, you know, in my mind, I went all over India as a sadhu. So, you know, and I'd meet all these really cool, like, sadhus and have all these sort of cool kind of dharma discussions and things would happen to me and, you know, and they'd all be quite handsome, I have to say. (laughs) I won't elaborate on that fantasy. So, you know, and it was just like this cotton wall in the mind, you know, it's like, how many more do I have to go through, you know, before I'm willing to be here, you know, obviously a lot, you know, so... So it's just you get to see the mind in these in these sort of you know called hindered states, you know, the restlessness and the what am I doing, the doubting. I, I don't know if I'm doing it right, should I be doing something else? Maybe I should be off in a Tibetan treat, maybe I should be home, maybe I should, you know, go out there and sit on the front lines. After all, the world's going to shite at the moment. You know, so all of these movements of the mind. And some of them are very convincing and very true, yeah. So it's not that we're just going; it's all, you know. So, but for the sake of building samadhi, it's very different when the mind, with some gatheredness, some strength of attention, groundedness, rootedness, embodied, present, fully present, with the faculties, these faculties operating, discernment, self-reflection, reflecting on the nature of things luminous, knowing intuitively, directly, how is it now? That gatheredness, groundedness, when that mind turns to the condition, to the hindrance, to the mind state, that's a radically different relationship and what is seen and what is understood. It's the, it has the potential to free us, to see directly the truth, this is just a thought. This is just, you know, rather than being turned by the, the state, turning the state, as is said. It's the state of mind. And we find ourselves returning, reclaiming, coming back home, where we can um, rest, where we can trust. We don't have to hold it all. We can relax and we can trust that what needs to be known will arise. Mm. And through that arising, the, the seeds of freedom and the actual taste of freedom becomes available, both immediately and as planting the seeds for the stabilization 
of the unshakable freedom of heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.